about a study that was done by two behavioral scientists. And it was a study involving, at Christmas time, involving Santa. And it was about how Santa would phrase questions. And so these kids were brought into Santa, and Santa would ask them, what do they want for Christmas? And so the kids, being well rehearsed with the script, would then tell Santa everything that they wanted for Christmas. And then the, San- the kids would leave Santa, and they would go to an elf. And the elf only had two pieces of chocolate left. But one was a really big chocolate piece, and one was a, a little bitty chocolate piece. And the elf would ask the kids, which chocolate do you want, and which chocolate do you want to give away to a friend? Almost always, they would choose the biggest piece of chocolate. In the second part of the study, kids, different kids were brought into Santa again, and Santa would reframe the question. And he would ask the kids, what are you going to give this year at Christmas? What are you going to give away? And at first, the kids would follow the the script that's already in their head. They would tell Santa all the things that they wanted. But as Santa kept kind of prodding and encouraging them to think about what they were going to give, they started mentioning things like, well, I'm going to give love, and I'm going to donate things. And, And so the script kind of shifted in their head. Then they went to the elf, who still only had two pieces of candy. And the elf would ask them, which piece of candy do you want? And this time, almost always, the kids would choose the smallest piece for themselves, and they would choose to give the biggest piece away. We are framed from birth to be selfish. That's just kind of the, the nature that we are in. We have to constantly and intentionally break out of that selfish mold. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about living in versus living out. And so living in is all that stuff that I'm, I like. It's, it's the things that I naturally do. It's the things that I think are fun. It's how I want to spend my time. It's, it's buying things that maybe I don't need. Maybe I could borrow it, but wow, it would really be cool to have it as my own. It's buying things maybe that the rest of the world would consider a luxury item. It, it revolves around me. It revolves around the things that I like and, and that I want. And Jesus calls us to live out. And he calls us to live out to others. Instead of my desires, focusing on others' desires. And maybe doing the hard thing. Maybe doing the thing that is not quite natural. Maybe not buying the thing that I want so that I can use that money to meet someone else's need. Maybe not hoarding my time, but just being a good steward of my time. Each one of us is inclined to live in, but Jesus calls us to live out. He calls us to live out his values and and the principles and the rights and the responsibilities of being a citizen of his kingdom. Live out. So we have to shift from my needs to others' needs. And how does that work? So over the next eight weeks, we're going to study this letter to a church to the Christians in the city of Philippi. And we're going to look at how to live out, live out our faith in Christ. To get a little bit of the historical setting for the city of Philippi, it was on the eastern end of the Ignatian Way. And the Ignatian Way was a 450-mile east-west road. It was on the eastern end of it. And so this road is what connected the Roman Empire. In 42 BC, it was the site of a major Roman civil war. And so after the war, 
these generals were left with thousands of soldiers in Philippi they didn't know what to do with. They didn't want them to go back to Rome, and so they established Philippi as a Roman colony, and they gave all these soldiers land. In fact, the city of Philippi was probably, it was the first place that um, this new, they heard about this new king named Jesus. So a lot of citizenship in this letter to the Philippians, that's kind of the, the makeup of the city. Later on in this letter in Philippians, Paul will talk about us being uh, citizens of heaven, that our citizenship is in heaven. And the predominant view of American Christians today is to think, oh, that's something future. You know, that citizenship in heaven stuff, that's when I die, then I'll be a citizen in heaven. And that was not what Paul was trying to convey. It's not waiting for heaven, it's right now. In fact, in Paul's world, a citizen of Rome didn't mean moving to Rome. The emperors didn't want that. The city was already overpopulated, a high unemployment rate. And so the task of a Roman citizen, the task of the Roman citizen in a place like Philippi was to bring Roman culture and rule to northern Greece, to expand Roman influence there. That's what it meant to be a citizen. And so our task in living out this relationship with Jesus is to bring his culture and his rule here, to our homes and to our city, to live that out here. You see, we're, we're very much like the city, of, the city of Philippi and the Christians there. We're citizens of one kingdom that in this colony of the church, we're trying to live out our faith in Jesus in the middle of another kingdom whose values and principles don't agree with ours. And so how do we do that? How do we expand Jesus' influence here. Let's take a quick look at where this church in Philippi started. And we're going to look in Acts, the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16, verse 11. You can go ahead and turn there. Acts is kind of a skeleton for the rest of the New Testament. And a lot of the letters in the New Testament can fit in to the skeleton in the book of Acts. Acts 16 is when this church starts. Acts chapter 16, verse 11. Paul and, and his missionary companions uh, from Troas. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace and the next day to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of the district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. And so just, just a, a little insight into the city of Philippi. Paul would normally go to the Jewish synagogue when he went to a new place. Uh, because of the strong Roman influence in Philippi, there weren't even 10 Jewish men in the city to establish a synagogue. So he finds a woman's Bible study by the river. Verse uh, 14. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So Thyatira was a, a little east of Philippi, and so this was an Asian woman, an Asian businesswoman who sold purple cloth. Purple cloth was... Uh, 
a very lucrative industry to be in. And for a thousand years, purple cloth in the Mediterranean area was a, a good business to be in. This lady probably had a house in Thyatira. She expanded her business over to Philippi. She was a woman of means, but she had renounced all the gods that were around her. And she was trying to figure out, how do I worship this one creator God? How does that work in my life? And so she heard Paul and things click and she puts it together that it's through Jesus Christ that I find this freedom and this forgiveness. And it's how I worship that one creator God. Verse 15, when she put all that together, she re- when she, uh, verse 15, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. She said, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. She led her business well, but Lydia also led her household and her family well. And she became the first in the church in the city of Philippi. Verse 16 as we continue on to see how this church got established. Verse 16, Once, when Paul and his companions were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. And so we have Lydia, who was put together. We have the slave girl, who was torn apart. We have Lydia, who was very focused and very fine-tuned. And we have the slave girl who was loud and chaotic. We have Lydia, a woman of means, a businesswoman. And we have this slave girl that was exploited. And we have a girl that made money for her handlers. You see, uh, in ancient times, when military campaigns would begin, they would often begin by seeking a fortune teller. And the word that describes the spirit that was in the slave girl is a very powerful demonic spirit. So most often, she was right. So she earned a great deal of money for the people that controlled her. Verse 17. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days, and finally Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit not to the girl. In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left. To a non-Jew in the streets of Philippi, when they heard the phrase, Most High God, they would have equated that to Zeus. When they heard the phrase, Way of Salvation, well, there are lots of ways of salvation in, in the Roman world. The emperor even declared himself as Savior. And so uh, Paul was troubled because the message of Jesus was being confused and convoluted. And so the the people in Philippi would have been thinking, ah, Zeus, emperor, nothing new, nothing new. Paul engaged Lydia with reason. He turns to the slave girl and engages her with power. And he uses the name of Jesus in this powerful demonic spirit then obeys and leaves the girl. Verse 19. When the owners of the slave girl realized that the hope of making money was gone, and it's interesting because Luke, the writer of this book book of Acts, he uses a wordplay 
And so when he talks about the spirit leaving the girl, he uses the same word when he talks about the owners losing their way of making money. And you know, the true test of convictions is our pocketbook. And so when the owners realize that, ah, how are we going to make it now? Our, our money, our source of income is now gone. Verse 19, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. And they brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept our practice. And the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. And so now we meet a third person that Paul engages as he's starting this church in Philippi, the jailer. Probably just a hardworking man trying to provide for his family. Probably a man that had a high concern for justice because he was not only, he was told just to put them in the cell and to keep them safely. He goes the next step further because they were lawbreakers and he puts them in stocks. They've already been flogged. They're bleeding. They're, they're wounded. And the, the stocks were not like uh, what we picture the New England stocks where you put your head and your arms through and you take a picture. It's the stocks that are they're mounted to the wall. And they're, they're made to put your legs and feet in awkward positions where you would cramp. And so this jailer, we don't even know his name, he goes the extra mile in the service of his job and he makes sure that Paul and Silas are wrapped up tight. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. When he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The, the jailer knew that he was responsible for his captives and he knew the penalty for letting them escape was execution. And so the more honorable thing to do was for him to take his own life before it got to that point. And Paul says, no, no, stop, we're still here. You see, the earthquake was not to deliver Paul and Silas. The earthquake was to deliver the jailer. Verse 29, the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He probably knew why they were there. He had definitely heard their singing and their prayers. And they replied, verse 31, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds, and then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Now fast forward 10 to 15 years. Paul is in prison again, probably in Rome. And not only was being in prison a disgraceful thing, 
But the prison system didn't provide food and for your basic needs. Your friends and family had to do that. And so, so guess who sends aid to Paul in the church in Philippi? They send money to Paul so that he can make it while he's in prison. So turn to uh, the book of Philippians. And this is the letter that Paul writes back to the church in Philippi after he receives their gift. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God, I thank my God every time I remember you. Remember, he is thinking of the faces. He is thinking of the, the businesswoman who didn't quite have it figured out how to worship God. He is thinking about this slave girl that had these cold, hardened eyes. And now she had eyes of love and peace. He was thinking about this jailer that after he had already been flogged, uh, executed more torture on him, and then ended up washing his wounds. He's thinking of those people that started this church. And he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers, for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Notice that Paul does not use the word membership. Paul does not talk about these people becoming church members. In fact, membership is equated to status. The Bible doesn't talk about church membership. The Bible ups the game. The Bible talks about partnership. The Bible talks about covenant. The Bible talks about household. The Bible doesn't talk about church membership. Partnership requires shared responsibilities. And so Paul says, you people in Philippi, you came alongside the mission. You came alongside and you partnered with me in this advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Partnership. Partnership means the sharing of worship, prayer, and mutual support in friends. But it was also the normal word for a business partnership in Paul's day. It meant that all would share in doing the work and that all would share in the financial responsibilities. So Philippi was a healthy church. And throughout this, this letter, we'll see that Paul encouraged them to continue on in their good works, to continue to do what they started. Osage Hills, a healthy church, but we must continue on. We must press forward. Essentially, Paul was answering this question to the church. You know, the church might have been have, had a tendency to even ask themselves the question, well, can't we relax and rest? I mean, we, we did this in the past. And Paul says, no, you can't stop. The world is too perilous. The gospel is too glorious. You can't be content with your past achievements. Verse 7 in chapter 1. Paul writes, 
It is right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share. And there's that word partnership again. Same word that requires the sharing of responsibilities. All of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so this overabundance of love Imagine like our hearts are a bucket. And to have an overabundance, that bucket not only has to be full, but it has to be full so that it then overflows. And so Paul's prayer for this church that is dear to his heart is that they grow in love, that that, their hearts just fill up and just starts overflowing on those around them. You see, love, that increasing love, empowers and balances knowledge. Knowledge needs love. And as a result, as we grow in love, the result is discernment. And so we could say it another way. How do we live out this faith in Christ? We increase in love, and then through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we figure it out. Love is the the key basis for it. So each week, during these next eight weeks, we're going to focus in on one aspect. And today's aspect that we're really, really zeroing in on is partnership to share in those responsibilities of advancing God's kingdom. So to live out means to partner with Christ, to partner with Jesus and what he's doing. So how do we do that? How do we become a partner with Jesus? I think the first thing that we even see in this text is that we submit to his leadership. And so like Lydia, Jesus doesn't cast a business mind in that wealth. He doesn't just cast that to the side. He refocuses that business sense. Like the slave girl. We don't know a lot about the slave girl. We don't know what happens to her. We don't know if she's for sure a part of this church in Philippi. But I wonder, what's her story? And I wonder, was there someone that valued her? Because we do know to Jesus, no one is a lost cause. And this slave girl would have been, have been pretty much written off as a lost cause. Was there someone that prayed for her? Was there someone that noticed the value in her as a human being? She didn't really have a choice when Paul uh, evoked the name of Jesus and the demon came out of her. But I wonder if what led up to that. What happened in that, that young woman's life? The jailer. The jailer was not afraid to ask the questions that need to be asked, and his pride didn't get in the way of the answer. You you picture a a tough guy with a strong position, and he ends up washing the wounds of Paul and Silas. He ends up inviting them into his home so that his family can experience the peace of Jesus. And we have to submit to his leadership. If we're going to become this partner with Christ, and and go ahead and think of it as terms of a business partner. If we're going to become this partner with Christ, we've got to submit and trust his leadership. But we've also got to make the shift personally 
to live out instead of in. And so we have to choose to live out from self-centered to other-centered. And so I frame these just in simple prayers that we might pray this week. Ask Jesus to help you make that shift. Ask Jesus, Jesus, I want to partner in what you're doing. What is that? What are you doing in my circle of influence? How can I partner with you in that? Jesus, how do I shift from being self-centered to others-centered? How do I do that? Uh, that's, a, that's a daily thing. That's a daily prayer for us. How do I make that shift from being self-centered to other-centered? And Jesus, give me eyes. Give me eyes to see what you are doing in the world around me so that I can partner with you in that. Those are kind of things that we can do just individually. But partnership with Jesus is much more than just an individual thing. And so let's think about it as a church for just a moment. How do we partner with Jesus as a church? I think it involves each one of us committing to pray for God to work. That's, that's our responsibility, to pray that God will work. Not as a last resort, not, not a thing where we get in a bind and we're like, oh, we really need God to bail us out now. But we pray now, God, what are you going to do here? Work in this congregation. Work in this community. It's our responsibility. And I think it's our responsibility to support with finances and with time. That's just the basics of a partnership. The basics of what Paul is trying to get across here is that we support the mission of Jesus with our time and with our finances. And I think it involves a willingness, a willingness to give up what we might like, even if we think we are right for the greater good of Osage Hills. Because each of us, we kind of have in our mind what we think is right and what as a church we should do. It's the willingness to give that up if it serves a greater good for the church. And I think we each need to grow in love. We need to abound more and more in love so that we can discern where God is working and where he is moving. We continue to grow in that love as a church and it becomes very clear where God is moving and where God is directing. What could Osage Hills be in the future? Church has a rich legacy. What could this church be in the future? What could the future impact of Osage Hills be in this community and around the world? See, church is not about meeting once a week. It's about bringing the influence of Jesus to the world, bringing his kingdom here, partnering with him and telling people that there's a different way to live, that we can live in freedom and forgiveness. To live out means we partner with Christ to bring the culture and rule of Jesus to this area. Everyone is, has a role. Everyone is needed. That partnership is a necessity for us to go forward. Lord Jesus, we're thankful for your goodness and your grace in our lives. We're thankful that you bring us along in this partnership of advancing your gospel. Uh, Lord, it's very humbling to be 
even considered as a partner with the creator of the universe. But the fact that you want to partner with us and you want us to partner with you in advancing your grace here on this earth is quite overwhelming. Lord, we know there's personal preparation on our part and there's preparation as a church so that we can do what you are calling us to do here. Lord, we pray that you would make our hearts pliable to what you're doing, that you would give us a very attentive ear, and Lord, that we would, without fear and without reservation, live out our faith in our homes and in our community. We thank you, Jesus. We love you for your goodness and for your grace. Amen. Tension with uh, progress. We have a love-hate relationship. I remember the uh, soccer field that I played on in my hometown that uh, has some great memories. I thought this soccer field would be immortalized and that it would always be a soccer field and for years and decades to come that kids would be able to play soccer on this field. And it is now a building. All in the name of progress. If we want a new restaurant in our city, then uh, sometimes, a lot of times, an old building has to be torn down in order to make room for something new. And it might be even be a building that we had a lot of good memories in or we had some special events in, and now that place is gone to make something new. For a city to progress, to make progress, someone has to pay for that, right? And so we vote on a tax, and then we are able to make progress. No one wants to be old and, and rusty and, and out of date. And so progress, we have this love-hate relationship with it, but it gets more personal than that because our babies grow up. And so um, progress happens, and, and we go from a point where they need absolutely 100% of our care and our focus and our attention, and we do everything. Everything revolves around them, and they don't eat without us, and they don't sleep without us, and we structure everything around them, and they go to not needing as much care. And then they start making their own decisions. And then they become independent. And they leave the house. And so Carrie and I, to stop that process, we implemented what we call No Feed Fridays. And so every Friday, we just don't feed our kids to maybe stunt their growth a little bit so that progress doesn't happen. Progress has a, has a dark side to it also. Uh, Adolf Hitler convinced Nazi Germany that they were making progress, that they were making evolutionary pro progress against another race of people. Personally, when we make progress, it, it has at times, it, it can be devaluing or stepping on someone else so that we can go up to the next rung. And so that we can get promoted, we have to squash someone else or we have to devalue someone so that we can make that next step and that next promotion progress. We live with it. We endure it. We love it. We hate it. And those are all in the same day. This is week two of an eight-week series on the book of Philippians. And it's called Live Out. And we are seeing what uh, the gospel of Jesus does when we live it out in our culture and our world. Each week, we're taking one concept from the book of Philippians. And today, you guessed it, we're talking about progress. And we're seeing how that applies to the Christian life. Progress was a nautical word in the ancient world. And it was a word that meant to make headway in spite of blows. 
And so Paul uses that word progress to talk about the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says this new king, this new king named Jesus is on the scene. And he is making progress throughout the world. He's making progress as geographically as the message of Jesus is, is preached and promoted. And he's also making progress in an individual's heart as his, his character transforms and remakes our individual's hearts. And so Paul says that this, this, this gospel is continuing to advance. Turn to chapter 1 in the book of Philippians. And Philippians, if you remember, is a letter that Paul is writing back to this church in the city of Philippi. And he's thanking them for supporting him during his imprisonment. Look at verse 12 in chapter 1. Paul says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And think just a moment. Remember back to how the, the church in Philippi started. Paul had been flogged and he was put in prison. And so his, his flesh would have been ragged. He would have been bleeding. And his feet would have been attached awkwardly to the wall to, to uh, elicit cramping in his legs. And him and Silas were, were praying and singing hymns at midnight. And an earthquake happens. The uh, stalks are released. They are free. The jailer runs in, ready to kill himself because he thinks his prisoners have escaped. And Paul says, no, 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 we're still here. The trial has served to advance the gospel in that man, that jailer, and his household because they accepted Christ and were baptized that very night. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now he's in prison again. And what he is enduring is actually positive. It's actually advancing the cause of Jesus Christ. Verse 13. As a result, it has become clear through the whole palace guard. And so here Paul is not in prison, but he's in what's called house arrest. And so he has guards that rotate, making sure that he stays. And so he has a very limited freedom, but it's not the same as being in stocks in a prison. And he says, The whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And so as those guards rotate throughout the day and the night, guess what Paul does? He's got a captive audience. And so he tells them about Jesus. Because of my chains, Paul says, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. And so here is Paul in house arrest in what most people would think a bad situation and he says guess what the gospel is being advanced I get guards that are a captive audience to listen to me tell them about Jesus and my imprisonment and the way that I'm handling it is actually giving courage and creating a fearlessness in the people the other brothers and sisters in Christ that are in Rome but with any type of progress, there's always some contentious people out there. In verse 15, Paul says this. He says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that 
In every way, whether by false, from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. This has always caused me a lot of personal turmoil to think, how could Paul rejoice that the gospel is preached out of selfish motive? And so probably what was going on, there were some people that were at odds with Paul, or maybe they had some personal gain, but they were spreading the word that there was this new king, and he was a Jew. Can you imagine that? A Jewish king. And this Jewish king got crucified, and, and now there's this crazy guy in jail. And this crazy guy in jail is telling us that this Jewish king now resurrected, and he's the true king. Okay, and they were doing that to make it more difficult on Paul. Paul saw it from the other way, and he thought, ha, huh, people are getting to hear exactly what I want them to hear, that there's a new king, that he died, and that he rose again. What could be better than that? And so whatever the motive that these people have, Paul says, wow, that is, that is perfect. That is great. The gospel of Jesus is being advanced. Where there is progress, where there is progress with the gospel, there will always be opposition. Paul is settled on the fact that as long as Jesus is advancing, it's all good. And so just a little personal challenge for us today we would do well to drop some of the, the petty, trite disagreements that we have with other Christians. We would do well to even drop some of those disagreements with other denominations and other churches merely to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. In, in places where persecution is intense, those trite disagreements seem to just filter away. And the cause of Jesus is what is promoted. Let's continue in verse 18. The last part of verse 18. Paul says, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And so at this point, keep in mind, Paul does not know if he's going to be released or not. Deliverance in this context might mean death. We don't often think of it that way. We think, oh, deliverance means being set free. But Paul doesn't know if he's going to be set free. But he knows that he's going to be delivered. I remember the day that I was in a, a Chili's restaurant and I was meeting with my friend John and my aunt, who we had been praying for, had just passed away. And, and I was, she was a she really fell in love with Christ the last few years of her life. And so I, I wasn't troubled by it, but I said, John, you know, my aunt passed away. God chose not to heal her. And John said, oh, no, he did. And I just thought, ah. And so often, so often as Christians, we have this wrong perspective on life and death. And so for the gospel to advance... We have to shift our perspective. We have to have the right perspective in the face of death. Many times, made a lot of hospital, hospital visits over the years, many times it would appear from how people pray when they have a sickness or illness, it appears that, that physical healing is the primary objective. Not the will of God and not for the cause of Jesus to be advanced. The primary thing that we can pray for in sickness and illness is for 
the gospel to be advanced. That's what Paul prayed. That's what Paul prayed when he was in prison. He wants the gospel to be advanced. He goes on in verse 20. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And, and so he's telling the Philippian church, you know what? Whatever happens, it will be good. But I, my, my primary goal is for the gospel to be advanced and I want to be found faithful. For me, if I were to die, I would actually profit. If I'm going to live, then I can't live halfway. I've got to live wholly centered on Jesus Christ. And once we embrace death, once we in, embrace our destiny at death, then we can really truly live. Paul knew this. Many times when you hear uh, American Christians taught, you would think that living is the prophet and death is something to be avoided. Paul says, the only way that I can really live is to embrace death. Death is what I'm looking for. He, in fact, in verse 22, he says, if I, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not, I do not know. Verse 23 I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. He desires to die for the sake of Christ. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. A right perspective. If we're going to advance the gospel, we have to have a right perspective about life and death. Imagine if the way we face death as Christians changed and we actually adopted what Paul is saying here, imagine how the medical community would be altered simply by our testimony when Christians were sick or were ill. It would be amazing. It would be mind-blowing what would happen if we embraced death to the point that Paul does. The way that we face death really shows our true belief in something. Verse 25. Paul says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress, there's our word again, and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. The goal of life is not comfort. It is not personal promotion. It is advancing the cause of Jesus Christ. Anything else is off base. It's bringing what we talked about last week. It's bringing his culture, his rule, and his reign to be influential here in our place. Let's finish out with verse 27. Paul writes, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There has to be action with progress. There has to be some tangible action. That action has to come out of the right heart, but there has to be that action. Imagine if we voted and passed on a tax to make progress in our city and nothing was ever done and that money was used for something else. Well, we'd be upset. Okay? Paul says, 
if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if, if you have been baptized into his citizenship, then it is a necessity, necessity that you live that citizenship out. And Paul phrases it here almost as a mild warning. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed that, but that you will be saved, and that by God, and that by God, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I have. When we, when we can face that opposition, and when we can shift our perspective on on death, when we can put into action some of our beliefs, then it is is very unifying. And the world sees that. And so Paul says, you've got to live as if the message that you believe is of supreme value and worth. And people will see that. People will see the difference in you if you live in that way. Let me close out with just a, it's a a longer quote, but it's got some good questions for us to think about and to process. This author, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Christ is all. Looking at it that way, the implication becomes rather simple. Not easy, but simple. If a mature Christian life or a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a life where you are deeply living deeply with others, regardless of external differences, if you strive for a deeper faith, and grow in your faith together, pressing into Christ, chasing Him together. And if it is the fearlessness in faith, how are you doing? How are you doing living for Christ and to die as gain? How is that internally working out in your heart? How is that externally working out in your relationships? He says, fearlessly face that question. Are you living a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ of such a value that others see that in you? There's no denying it. Are you living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? Have you found Christ worth living for, worth dying for, worth casting away all for his sake? Examine your own heart. Do you hang out with people who are just like you? Are you timid and fearful when it comes to any opposition to your faith? In the end, are you growing in God? Or are you stagnant and cold? Remember, we're talking about what it looks like to be, a maturing, be maturing in Christ. Face these questions with courage and press on. Jesus loves you. When we forgo our own way to stand together in the Spirit of Christ, we make the gospel look supremely valuable. And now that we've removed our energy and affections from selfish ambitions, we can move out on a mission together. The world does not really see the value in the gospel. 
primarily that's our fault we have not lived like it's of supreme value we have not been united we have pretty much the same perspective on death that everyone else has it's something to be avoided we think that our mind in our mind what needs to happen is what needs to happen and Paul says and even in opposition the gospel can be advanced and something good can happen in a way that we didn't ever imagine very challenging passage of scripture to live out what we actually believe and there will be opposition and we have to really come to terms with how we are going to view death and we have to put into action what we say we believe are you ready for that are you ready to advance the gospel no matter what the cost to you personally Lord, we're thankful for just your patience with us. We're thankful for your love for us. We are thankful that you are good. And we're thankful that you provide the hope of Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that there are many in our city that need to know that love of Jesus Christ. Give us the courage. May we just be encouraged today from Paul's example that uh, we can fearlessly and courageously um, invite someone to church or tell them about the hope in Jesus or tell them um, how we would handle a situation. Lord, and may you just start working in the lives of our relationships. Lord, as we give up control, we give up maybe our agenda on how we thought life was to go and we really live it for you. And we really consider death as a profit, as something to gain. But Lord, while we are here, we want to take on the same mindset of Paul. While we are here, we have work to do. And we have um, your hope to spread. And we want to bring the rule and reign of Jesus, um, his influence here to our culture. Give us the wisdom on how to do that the best way possible. Give us um, the courage to do that. And we will trust that you will lead and guide us along the way. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Don't we all want to be important? Want to be noticed? Want to uh, have some type of recognition or status? I'm going to share a sh short story from the book of Mark. There's no need to look it up. I just want you to listen to it. James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, struggled with that same thing. They wanted to be important, they wanted to have recognition, and they wanted to have that status. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and they said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Pretty bold question to ask Jesus. Well, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. And they replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. You think? Two of the group asking for a higher status, asking for more importance 
than the other ten. Jesus could sense the tension developing within his group. And so he calls them together. And he said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. And so you you know, don't you, that when someone has position and status, they are to use that position and status to control, manipulate things for their own good. You're familiar with that, aren't you? And Jesus says these four powerful words. He says, not so with you. Not so with you. You will not act like that. You will not use your position and your status and your importance to influence things for your own good. Instead, he says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So who is really important? just want to throw out there that the most important person in the room is the servant. That's what Jesus was saying. Who is really important? We're in a series called Live Out, and we're going through this letter to the Philippian church, a letter that Paul wrote back from prison to the city in Philippi and the church that was located in that city. And we're really zeroing in on one aspect um, each Sunday morning from a cluster of verses. And so you probably guessed it that we're talking about service today. And if you want to think about it in the terms of servanthood, it's the same line of thought, service and servanthood. But we're going to really focus on that. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. That's where we are, Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to start reading at verse 3. Paul writes this. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Really? Is that even possible? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit? The the idea of selfish ambition has this, some translations even use the word rivalry. It's competition. It's me trying to get to things before you get to them. It's me plotting and being intentional about my agenda. What is good for me? What works for me? And I'm going to get to it before you do. And if I have to crush you in that process, then that's part of the game. Selfish ambition. Is it possible for us to do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition? Our vain conceit, that idea of empty pride, uh, vain conceit is that sore loser. It's not even based on something that's true. It's based on a false perception. It's pride based in appearance. And so do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. We all have a list, don't we? We all have a list of people that we really do think that we are better than. Right? Well, we don't write that list down because that would be really dangerous. Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Our list 
has some names on it of people that we know that we really do think that we are better than them. And then it has also has categories in it. And it has the addict. And it maybe has the unemployed. And maybe it has the sexually immoral. And we think, ah, I am. It's not arrogance. It's I just am. I am better than those people. Isn't that true? We really do. Do nothing, Paul. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And in humility, consider others better than ourselves. How do we do that? How do we do that? Do you struggle with that? Do you struggle when others succeed and you don't? Do you compare yourself to others? Are there some people that you just flat out despise? You see their car in town and you, you start sweating because you know the person that is driving that car. And, and so you'll even go to the other side of the parking lot so that you don't run into that person coming out. Are you happy when somebody really gets what they deserve? Do you really deep down want to be important? This is a majestic scripture because it talks about the character and the nature of Jesus Christ, but it is also a very cutting scripture because it really cuts to some core issues that we face. Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. One author has said this, those concepts refer to someone who thinks too highly of himself, but paradoxically must continue to self-promote as there is a sense of insecurity about his importance and honor. In church news this week, a megachurch pastor in St. Louis was fired, a church of 3,000 was fired for self-promotion. We can sense it when we're around it. We can even sense it in ourselves. But what do we do about it? Selfish ambition and vain conceit. When those things are out of control, it is not possible to think of others better than ourselves. In a church like this church in Philippi, you had social status, and so you had people in the city that had maybe a high social status, and then you had military people that didn't have, have as high of social status, but they had a high military rank. And so you've got some conflicting interest going on. Another author says this about Paul's advice in verses 3 and 4. He says, If it were taken seriously by higher status Christians in Philippi, they would have to stop acting on the basis of the normal social protocols and customs and take Christ's actions as their model for acceptable and normal behavior toward anyone, especially toward fellow Christians. Imagine that. Paul is challenging us to go against the cultural norms and value everyone as valuable. How do we do that? How do we, how do we count, how do we view the needs of others better than myself? Paul goes on, if we didn't, as if we didn't need anything else. Paul goes on in verse 5. 
And just to make his point crystal clear, he says your attitude. And some translations have the word mind there. It's a specific way of thinking about things. Your attitude, the way that you think about things, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. The way that you think, and let's just insert, the way that you think about people, the way that you think about the addict, and the way that you think about the prostitute, and the way that you think about anyone else that we could list off, that your attitude, the way that you think about them should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Wow. That's hard stuff. That is really hard. Verse 6. Who, being in the very nature God. And so, Jesus having all the characters, character traits, all the essence of God Almighty, who being in the very nature God. He was equal with God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't use his position to manipulate. He did not use his position to gain an advantage. He didn't by force hold on to his position even though he was equal with God. But Paul says he made himself in verse 7 nothing. He didn't give up his divinity when he came to earth. He didn't get up, give up his godlike character traits. He made himself nothing by giving up his rights. When he became a human being, he gave up his rights and claim so that, Paul says, he could take the very nature of a servant. So that he could take the very essence of what it means to be a servant and he could take those things on. It's quite mind-boggling to think about. This, this is one of those things that, that separates Christianity from, from every other religion that Jesus emptied himself. He gave up his rights to come down and to be one of us and to serve us. Wow. He used his position as almighty God to serve. And just think back through the, the, the stories that you, you know or might be familiar with. He used his position of Almighty God to touch the leper and to touch the bleeding woman and to pay attention to the child. Wow. Aren't you glad that you serve a God that is like that? Verse, verse 8 and Paul, Paul goes on, he says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We could spend weeks just in this little chunk. We just don't have time this morning to unpack everything that is there. I want to give you kind of two summary statements that will help uh, put in perspective what is going on 
in this passage of Scripture. Some would even call this little section, verses 6 through 11, as one of the most majestic passages in all the New Testament. I might agree. As you look, look at this quote. As you look at the incarnate Son of God dying on the cross, the most powerful thought you think that you should think is, this is the true meaning of who God is. He is the God of self-giving love. And by humbling himself on the cross out of love, he demonstrated that he truly shared the divine nature of God, who is love. For this reason, God raised him to life and highly exalted him, entrusting him with the rule of the cosmos and giving him the name that is above every name. Aren't you glad that the ruler of the universe is a servant? It makes it work. Jesus did not lord his position over us or anyone else. He did quite the opposite. And so what what does this matter? You notice we skipped verses 1 and 2. So jump back up to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. And so if you have any encouragement that all men and women can be saved. It doesn't matter their race. It doesn't matter their family background. It doesn't matter their history. It doesn't even matter their level of sin. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, church. If you've experienced um, any of these things, if you've experienced that you can be saved and that his love has made a difference in you, that you have developed deep community in the church, if you care about others, if you've experienced any of that, church, then do this. Make my joy complete, verse 2, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. There's an old saying in the ancient world that when you gather two rabbis together, that you would have three opinions. And it's not much different in the church. But Paul says, church, be like-minded. Love each other and be intentional with everything that you do. What if, what if the church was like that? What if, what if our church was like that? If we were like-minded and we, we loved each other and we were uh, intent on doing what we needed to do. But first, personally, for verses 1 and 2 to happen like they should happen, verses 3 and 4 have to take root in us. We have to actually consider and view others as better than ourselves. And we have to get rid of that selfish ambition and we have to get rid of that vain conceit. And so how do you do that? Jesus became a servant. He became a servant. In every essence, he became a servant. And so I was thinking about this, and and it jogged my memory about a man named Horst Schultze. Probably don't know the name Horst Schultze, but he is the co-founder of Ritz-Carlton. And so if anyone should know about great service... It should be Horst. And so we're going to watch a short video to introduce you to Horst. It's a CNN interview with him. 
Take a quick look at this. In an anxiety for food, we counted them as many potatoes we had. We actually moved for days into the forest, picking mushrooms and, 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 and beech nuts and things like that to, to survive. Growing up during the war in Germany, he had one goal, a warm meal, which for him meant leaving home at a very young age. But with 11, I insisted to work in a hotel business. Nobody knows why. The assumption is, I knew that there must be food in there. With 14, I left. Some went to, to school, high school, and I went and worked in a hotel as a busboy. At some point, you know, working in a hotel was more than just yeah. having a place where you could actually get food. In the matter D, I could see that if you are excellent in what you are doing, you will be recognized and you, you will get rewards. We are ladies and gentlemen, serving ladies and gentlemen. I wrote an essay when I was 15 in the hotel school about it, and it has been my motto ever since. He worked in hotels throughout Europe and eventually landed a job in the United States. But there were always challenges. What was the biggest obstacle to getting to this vision? The reality that I'm a foreigner, the reality that I don't speak the language, the reality that the people I competed with, if you will, came from Cornell and uh, the different universities, and I came from eighth grade. After overcoming cancer, Schultze went on to open his own line of boutique luxury hotels all over the world, still guiding his employees with the same principles he learned at just 15. You are ladies and gentlemen, just like they are. You have had this incredible life, and you've come from a place where you were literally foraging through the forest to running some of the most exclusive hotels in the world. But for people out there right now who are facing some sort of obstacle, yeah. big or small, what would you tell them? Let's talk about vision. It's not enough to see it. You have to now commit yourself to it, implement, and keep focus on it. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN, reporting. So did you get that? When he was 11, he had this idea of getting into the hotel industry primarily so that he could have food. His brothers and sisters would would scrounge through the leaves to find nuts and stuff to eat. And he realized when he, for, when he was 14, he moved away and he became a busboy at this luxury hotel. And his parents always told him as a kid, you could never go to that hotel because that hotel is full of very important people. We don't fit in there. You can't go there. And so as a busboy, Horst was looking in the room of these very important people and it dawned on him who the most important person in the room was. It was Major D. It was the head waiter. Because everything would collapse in that room of very important people if the head waiter was not doing his job and doing it well. And he noticed that that head waiter didn't come to work to work, but he came to work to be excellent in his profession. And so Horst coined this phrase that he still uses today, ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. That's what service is about. It's caring about... The, the needs of others. That's what it is. So what makes a good servant? This is what Horst says. He says there's three components that make up a good servant. A greeting, compliance, and farewell. And so we're going to just unpack those really quick. There's the greeting. And so those first 10 seconds, Horst says, are the most important and they really set the tone for the rest of the interaction. And so when you get within 10 or 12 feet of someone, you are to engage them. 
That's how he trains his employees to greet them. And those first 10 seconds are critical. I was at a business this past week and I was in one of those long lines and it had several spots at the counter. And when it was my turn, the, the employee said, next please. And I went to her spot and it wasn't bad, but she didn't make eye contact with me. And so I was another person in her day as she was trying to get her job done. But what if, what if she would have looked up and she would have said, the gentleman in the blue shirt, I'm ready to help you next. Come to my window. Something like that. Something authentic. Something that is um, very positive. And that sets the tone for the rest of the interaction. Um, let me talk about another example that Carrie and I went to lunch on Tuesday. We got an email about this lunch special that this business was doing. And so we went and we said, hey, we want this Tuesday lunch special. And the, the waiter was nice and he said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And so he goes and he gets the manager. And the manager comes over. The manager comes over and he, his opening line is this. I hear that you want to claim a coupon or something like that. It's not my coupon. You sent it to me, and it's not even a coupon. It's a Tuesday lunch special. And he said, well, let me look at it. And so he takes Carrie's phone, and he looks at it, and he says, well, I, I guess we can do that for you if that's what you want. And then he walks off. Subconsciously, the next time that we go by Chili's, oh, whoops, um, <laughs> I'm going to be inclined not to go there. Was the manager rude? No. But the greeting was off. That greeting, compliance, farewell, all that was messed up. And so I left thinking we didn't have good service. Imagine if he would have come to the table and said something like this. I see that our Tuesday lunch special brought you in. I haven't seen that yet, but I would love to take a look at it and do everything I can to make that happen for you. And look at it and say, this is great. I will get this done for you, and I hope you have a great rest of your lunch. What does that do? That changes everything. Greeting, compliance, and farewell. And so here's where, where we're going to get really real for a second. People are relational. More than any product... They want other people to be nice to them. And even if the product has some defect, they are willing to deal with that if the person that they're dealing with is nice. And so Horse says, great service has a greeting, a compliance, and farewell. And if you think about it, the great service that you've had in the past week probably had those components to it. Great organizations, those things are embedded in the organizations. My pleasure. We all know where that comes from, and it's a farewell. It's a positive farewell. So great organizations have exceptional service. Jesus gave us a mission, and he organized these followers of his into the church. And so the church is an organization. And because of our mission and because of the importance of our mission, it is critical that we have exceptional service. And service starts 
when we are able to move out of the way and we are enabled to focus on the person that is across from us or next to us and greet them, comply with them, and have a farewell. Let's flesh it out. What if in our community we used greet, comply, farewell to engage our community? And so we went to some other organization and we said, hey, we're the church. You might not have heard of us or you might not know where we are located, but we are here to help you. What do you need help with? How can we come alongside your mission as an organization or a school? How can we assist you? And they say, well, it's great. We, we, we need to do this. And we don't tell them what we want to do, but we listen to them and we understand what their needs are. And then we say, great, I'm going to go back and I'm going to get some things together. I'll be in touch with you about that. How, what difference would that make in our community? Another, another example. You show up at church late. I know no one shows up at church late, but you show up at church late and you, and you park over here and as you're getting out, someone else pulls up and, and you don't recognize the car and it's a single mom and she's got two kids in the back and, you know, it's, you're late and you're not the greeter on this Sunday, but you're within 10 or 12 feet of her and so you think, ah, I need to greet her. And so you go over and you say, welcome to our church today. Can I help you get in the door? And so you walk her to the front door. And you walk her down to where the kids get checked in. And you're with her that whole time. And, and because you're complying, you're anticipating the needs that she has. What are needs that a new person has? The bathroom, right? The bathroom and the coffee. And so you show her where the coffee is and you show her where the bathroom is and you say, you know what? I would, I would really love for you to sit with me today. Because in a church where uh, seating patterns are kind of fixed, you need to sit with someone that's a familiar face so that you, the new person doesn't get yelled at for taking someone else's seat, right? <laughs> and so she comes in and she sits with you and she leaves and you invite her to something and she says, you know, I can't, I can't come today. I have to do a birthday across town. Well, we, we hope you come back and we hope that today was a breath of fresh air for you. And she leaves. You missed out on talking to your friends. Yep, you sure did. You didn't get to check up on so-and-so and so-and-so and see how their week was because you were focused and somewhat consumed with this new person. But you know what? For years, her parents have prayed for this day. And her grandma has prayed for this day. And it wasn't an accident that you were late on this day because you were there to greet her before she got in the door. And you set all of your needs aside so that you could be nice to someone that you didn't know. 
I think heaven rejoices at that kind of stuff. You think service is important in the church? It is. One person at a time. So, who's the most important person in the room? Jesus, the servant. Lord, we are thankful that you walk with us. We are thankful that we get to be the actual hands and feet of you. And we get to interact and engage with people that have been beaten and bruised by the world. And we have an answer for that and we have a hope for that. And Lord, lots of times the thing that brings down all the walls and all the barriers is just simply being nice. Lord, give us the courage to move out of the way and, and to really deal internally with the things that cause that selfish ambition and that vain conceit. Help us to, to deal with those things at a heart level. And Lord, one of the most practical things that we can do to, to eradicate those things is to serve others, to be nice to them. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to do that with everyone that you bring across our path. We want to bring people to you, and we want all the glory and the focus to be on you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Perspective is everything, isn't it? Earlier this week on Monday, I was taking my son to school, and we, we loaded up in the car, and I, I was thinking, something's not Right, I, I'm missing something and couldn't put my finger on it. And so we drove down the block and I'm thinking, ah, something critical is missing from my morning. I just couldn't identify what it was. And we drove another block and I, and I start thinking, something is just, something is not right. Oh yeah, I forgot to brush my teeth. And, uh, that really frustrated me because my whole morning routine was off now. So I dropped my son off to school, drove back home, brushed my teeth. And I realized that in that moment of, of a little bit of anger and a little bit of frustration, and it was a quick fix. I drove to school, drove back home and brushed my teeth. That distance is what most African children walk in a day to get water to drink. Wow little bit of perspective. And so at our house, we have this thing that we are able to call. If someone's complaining about something that they really shouldn't be complaining about, we have the right to call each other on it by saying it's a first world problem. Watch this video. I hate when my phone charger won't reach my bed. I hate when my little seats aren't heated. When I go to the bathroom and I forget my phone, I hate it when my house is so big. I need two wireless waters. When my megan makes my hot water taste too cold. When I have to write my maid a check, but I forget her last name. 
So the next time someone in your family complains about something that they really shouldn't be complaining about, just tell them it's a first world problem. Perspective does a lot for us, doesn't it? Last week in Philippians chapter 2, you can go ahead and turn there. Philippians chapter 2, we ended this little section, verses 9 through 11. And, and these verses give us tremendous perspective. Now I'll just read them really quick. Philippians chapter 2, 9 through 11. The Bible says, Therefore God exalted him, that's Jesus, to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming, and, and we might get frustrated with um, forgetting to brush our teeth, or we wake up and our bodies don't work quite like they used to work last week, and, and things might not go according to how we had planned and how we, line, how we had it lined out, or we might have poison ivy that will not go away no matter what we try. And we're just reminded that perspective is a lot. And the day is coming that Jesus is coming back and he is big when he comes back. And no need, there will be no need to tell people to bow at his coming. We will all impromptu bow whether we know him or not because he will be so big and so glorious. And he's coming back. He came the first time as the sacrificial lamb. He's coming back the second time as a warrior king. And he's going to be, he's going to be, can I say this about Jesus? He's going to be ripped and he's going to have a tattoo. If that part throws you off, Revelation 19.16 says that he will have King of Kings and Lord of Lords on his thigh. That's the kind of Jesus that is coming back. Perspective is everything. That perspective that Jesus is big and that he is king launches us in to uh, verse 12 of Philippians 2. And I'll read that in just a minute. Throughout these last four weeks, we've been talking about live out. And so what it means to, to live out because of the gospel. In the first week, we talked about becoming a partner. And then we talked about uh, advancing the gospel. Last week, imitating the servant. And this week, working out our salvation. Working out our salvation. And so God has saved us through Jesus, but he hasn't saved us to sit. Isn't that right? And so Paul says in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to do will, in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And that, that phrase, work out our salvation, kind of trips us up a little bit, doesn't it? And because we've always heard we're saved by grace, and then Paul says, work out your salvation. How do these, how do these mesh? How do these fit together? And so I want to just, just really quickly give you three things of what Paul is not saying, just to kind of get us on the same page. So when Paul says, work out our salvation, he is not saying that we earn our salvation. Okay, he's not saying that. One author has said it this way, grace is opposed to earning, not effort. And so we will have effort in the Christian life, but we are not earning our position before God. Grace is a free gift. 
It is a free gift. There's nothing that we do to get it, and we don't even deserve it. And that point is one of those uh, crucial points to Christianity, and that differs between all other world religions. We are saved by grace. It is a free gift. There's nothing that we can do to coerce God to give us his grace. But salvation has this now and not yet ring to it. We, when we accept Christ, we are in Christ. We are with Jesus. But as we can tell when we get up and things don't work right, we're not there yet. And so there's this, this distant part to salvation that we're not fully saved yet. That's coming. That part is coming. The part where there's no more tears and, and there's no more pain. That part is coming, but it's not here yet. And so in that in-between time, Paul says, work out your salvation. God is working on us, and we have a right and responsibility in that. And, and so think about grace, because Paul is not saying that we earn our salvation. Think about a paycheck. And in your company or your business, you agree to work for a certain wage, and you agree to do a certain job. And so at the end of the time that, you've, that they've allotted, that you've worked what you've said you, you would do, you have earned a paycheck. You have a right to that paycheck. And so if they don't give you that paycheck, then there's a problem. And we have, we have a problem here. Because I, I lived up to my agreement, now you must live up to yours. Grace is not like that. There is nothing that we can do to earn or put God in a position where he has to dispense grace. And grace is more like God says, oh, I'll take care of the paycheck. I'll write it, I'll sign it, and I'll give it to you. What's our part? Receiving it. God is not going to demand us to receive his grace. He doesn't force us to receive his grace. And he lets us do what we want to do, which is an amazing attribute of God. Uh, the second thing that uh, Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that we can be baptized, sit back, and relax. Okay? You, do you feel the tension here? There, there's freedom and there's work. And even the, the, the church in Philippi that Paul is writing to, he says, wow, you've obeyed. And so in that context, you know, today we kind of separate obey. You can hear and then you can choose whether or not to obey. In that context, if you heard, you did it, you, you heard it and you obeyed it. You did it. And so Paul is saying, church, you did it. You, you heard the word of Jesus and you obeyed it. That, that has effort attached to it. Um, it's hard sometimes, but you did it. Some branches of Christianity, um, ours included, have an idea that once you are baptized, that you can just punch your ticket and you can wait for heaven. And you can basically uh, live like you want to live in that in-between time. And, and uh, you can increase in greed and self-promotion, meanness and anger. Um, if you are willing to serve in the nursery, then we'll kind of overlook those things, Right? But you can continue to be a vile person and be baptized and just kind of wait for heaven. That's not okay. That's not, that is not okay. That is not what taking on the character of Christ looks like. And a lot of times we'll even, uh, you know, church, the church world has a lot of funny sayings. And someone will just, will just annihilate us with their words. And then someone else will come up and they'll say, well, that's just how they are. That's just how they are. That's not okay. That's not okay. If we are not taking on the character of Christ, if we are still mean, 
then there's a problem. There has to be that working out of salvation, is what Paul says. That has to, that has to happen. That has to happen. It, it seems like sometimes that... Uh, we are, we are asking the wrong question. It's another perspective question. There's lots of perspectives in Philippians. We want to get as close to the edge as we can get and not go to hell. We want to embrace the world as much as possible and still go to heaven. Isn't that the wrong question to ask? The, the right question, the right perspective is, what do I need to take on the character of Christ? And man, we're going to experience freedom and forgiveness when we take that approach to it. Listen to this quote. <clears throat> Our identity as a beloved child of God is to love God to the point that transformation is desired and craved. Okay, that, that transformation is desired and craved. It's something that we hunger for and something that we long for. Not an inconvenience to be tolerated. You see the shift in perspective. That transformation, taking on the character of Christ, is not saying, Christ, you're going to intrude upon my lifestyle. It means, God, you're going to enhance my lifestyle as I come uh, under your submission. Paul is not saying that work overrides grace, or that work occurs first and grace second. Grace really allows us to work correctly. Look at this quote. This writer says, Acknowledging Jesus Christ as Lord obligates the believer to obey Him. That, that act of surrendering ourselves to Jesus Christ, that obligates the believer to obey them, to obey Him. Hence, working out salvation does not mean working for salvation, but making salvation operational. That's a good word. Makes salvation operational. It makes it functional in this daily life that we live. That's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians. Ephesians says in verse 8 of chapter 2, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Grace is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Grace is needed to live in interaction with God. Adam and Eve needed that grace. Even before they ate the fruit, before that sin, to exist in, in the presence of God Almighty, it is a ne necessity to have His grace there. We can't exist in that state without His grace. And that salvation is to be fruitful. And so as we come to Christ and as we take on the character of Christ, we produce that fruit, that, that sustained effort over the course of time that produces good things. And Paul says that we're to do that in fear and trembling. And so what is up with that? Why, why, does, why does Paul say do it with fear and trembling? It's, it's not the fear that causes anxiety. Okay, but it's that fear that gives us a proper balance. Because on one side... You've got those that when Jesus comes back and they bow before him, they are going to be in terror, okay? You've got the other side of people over here that they've been baptized and they are just absolutely lethargic and they don't do a thing and they could care less because by golly, they're saved, okay? This fear and trembling puts us in the middle. God is powerful, and when you read that description of Jesus in Revelation, 
he is mighty glorious. I mean, he is intense. Okay, he's got fire coming out of places. He's got a sword. He's on a horse. That must inspire us and motivate us to produce that fruit in a healthy way. So we get to verse 14. It's a strange verse. Paul says, do, nothing, do everything without complaining or arguing. And we have a pattern in church stuff that we take paragraphs. And we'll take a paragraph and then we'll, we'll end that paragraph. And next week we'll pick up with the next paragraph and we'll talk about that paragraph. And then next week we'll, we'll end that chapter and we'll start the next chapter. And we don't string those lines of thought together. Right? We do that. It's kind of our habit. Some of it's just our schedule meeting every week. And so when Paul wrote this, he wrote it continuously. All right? And so if you read it continuously, you've got this work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do nothing out of, do nothing by, by complaining or grumbling or murmuring. And we're like, hmm, that's strange. That's a really weird transition. Why does Paul throw in grumbling? And so some of, your, some of your Bibles will say complaining, some will say grumbling, some will say murmuring. That word, grumbling, is a code word. Kind of like if we were to say 9-11. We don't have to explain that, right? 9-11. We have pictures, we have images, we have descriptions. If we say the Civil War, we, we know who was president, we have images, we have the idea of what that is. When Paul uses the word grumbling, he's using a code word. And so do you know where it was first used? Any idea? Go back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 14. So turn there. Exodus chapter 14. This is after the, the, uh, the plague of death that takes the firstborn children of all the Egyptians. This is after the, the Israelites pack stuff up and they are heading out of town. And Pharaoh gets really upset and he's like, he reneges on his promise. I'm not going to let them go. I'm going to go after them. And so they get to the, the Red Sea. And the, chapter 14 tells us that in verse 19 that this angel that had been traveling, the angel of God that had been traveling with him, that had been leading the way, this angel of God goes from the front to the back. All right? Imagine if you'd have been there to see that. The angel of God. Because here come, the, here come the Egyptians. You're trapped by the sea. There's some space in between you. And the angel of God moves to the back. And the pillar of, of smoke and cloud that was in the front leading you, it moves to the back. And now there's a separation between this, the world's greatest army and a bunch of sheep herders and brick builders. There it is. And Moses does his staff thing. The waters separate. Later in chapter 14, we find out that the Israelites walk through a wall of water on dry ground. Miriam sings, writes a song and sings it. And look at verse, chapter 15. <clears throat> look at verse 24. After all these just absolutely amazing things, okay, God stops the greatest army in the world and he does it with his angel saying, nope. They walk around in the desert three days. They don't have water. And guess what? 
they grumble. And we think, why is that such a big deal? Because it's related to grace. Because everything that God had done up to that point was his outpouring of grace upon them. It was grace that, that the angel moved to the back. It was grace that the waters parted. It was grace that, that made them across, walk across on dry ground. And so the Israelites are essentially saying, we think it's your time to, to dispense grace right now. And if you're not going to do that, we're going to take charge. And, and it's almost like they held up their fist to God and said, we are the controllers of your grace, not you. And that is scornful to God. That's why it's such a big deal. So, you know where grumbling occurs again? Flip over to John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, there's a similar, similar setting here. We've got the feeding of the 5,000, and uh, Jesus does this miraculous thing. He feeds the people. He walks on water. Uh, this crowd then follows him, and they come up to him, and they say, hey, hey, Jesus, we want more food. We want to be around you. You're cool. You do, you do miracles, and we just want to hang out with you. And, and Jesus said, can you, can, you really, can you really follow me? Because if you really follow me, I am the bread. You're looking for bread, but I am the bread. Can you really do that? And verse 41 in chapter 6. At this the Jews began to grumble. But this time it's more intense because they grumble at him. They are grumbling in the very presence of grace. And as we flip over, Jesus says, in verse 43, Jesus says, stop grumbling. Don't do that. And then as we, we go on down, we hear that uh, many of the disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And aware that his disciples were, were grumbling about this, Jesus says, does this offend you? And then we go a few more verses. And from this time, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer followed him. That's why it's such a big deal. You see, digest this quote. Paul sees the church as the people of the new exodus, brought out of Egypt of sin and death through the Passover action of God and Jesus. And now on the way home to the real promised land, at this time they are going to get it right. And that remains the challenge before the church today, just as in the first century. Basically, to sum that quote up, Grumbling is our default posture. We can experience grace after grace after grace after grace. Grumbling is when we default. Okay? I'll, I'll share an example that I didn't share in first service, so you can have one up on them. About a year ago, a year and a half ago, I was leading a small group of, of leaders, and we just had a phenomenal time phenomenal. I was, I was exceptional that night. Everything, every answer, every thought, everything connected, everything flowed, everything was articulated. And, and they left going, wow. And I thought, wow, that was good. And this past week, 
I thought about something that I did. After everyone had left, I took my phone out and I took a picture of the marker board. It was a work of art. The connections and all the diagrams and everything that had fallen into place. You know why I did that? Because I wanted to be in charge of producing grace the next time I taught that lesson. I wanted to be in charge of grace. And if I repeat everything that I did on that board, again, the same thing will happen, right? That is scornful to God. That is mocking his gift of grace. So Paul says, don't, don't repeat the past, people. Church, church, don't repeat the past. Don't demand grace. Don't think that you can manipulate grace. Work out your salvation, but don't grumble. Grumbling is an internal problem. Grumbling is not an external problem. Grumbling is deeply internal when I think that I can make a claim to something that is holy God's to make a claim on. And so you know what Paul is advocating for? I think he's asking us to look inside. Because in order to to work out our salvation, it's kind of ironic that that working out actually has to be inside first. Because that heart has to be right or we're going to grumble. We will repeat history. But the heart has to be right. And when that heart is right, and when we've done the work that we need to do there, then, wow, the fruit that will come out of that is good. It's just very, very good. So try this this week. Instead of trying to do something more, Okay, I, want you, I want you to try this and just experiment with this, trusting that Jesus is who he said he is. When you go throughout your day, shift from a singular pronoun to a plural pronoun. Okay? And so if you were thinking, I'm going to run to Reesers, just shift that mentally and say, we are running to Reesers. Are we, Jesus and I, are going to this very difficult meeting at work and I'm not sure how it's going to play out. We are going to do something very hard this week. And I think as we start to do that, that changes the inner orientation of our heart. Because we walk with him and we trust in him and we shift from trying to manipulate or coerce his grace. It just, it just wells up and it comes out. Paul tells us why that's so important. <clears throat> he says in verse 15, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run our labor for nothing. 
That's why we want to work out our salvation. We want to do the internal work so that then we can pour out that grace on others around us. Lord, we're thankful for this day. We're thankful for your constant uh, goodness to us. Lord, increase our trust in you today. Increase our, our dependence upon you. Lord, remind us that, that we are really not in control. You are. And you consistently give us invitations throughout our day and our week. You, in, you consistently invite us in to what you're doing. You consistently invite us in to allow that working out of our salvation to take place. And may, may we just trust you with that. Lord, we want to produce fruit in a way that changes our world. But unless we do the inner work first, that's not going to happen. And it's, it's going to be skewed and off. Lord, we thank you. Uh, we trust you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.